and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. It has just five and a half million people. It's the happiest country in the world and has been for five years. And it's often held up as a model to the rest of the world. But how is Finland run and is there anything we can learn from it? Danny Dawling is the co-author of Fintopia. He's also Professor of Human Geography at Oxford University. Welcome back to The Bunker, Danny. Thanks for having me. So the left in Britain has a tendency to hold up the Nordic countries as a bit of an ideal. It's probably something to do with Borgen. Places like Denmark and Sweden do have problems we sometimes overlook. Why did you decide to write about Finland? Because it's Norway, Denmark and Sweden that people normally write about. But Finland is interesting because it doesn't have the advantages such as oil that Norway has. And it doesn't have a history of having an empire that Sweden has. It was a colony. And despite those disadvantages, and despite being on the very edge of Europe, Finland has ended up doing remarkably well. And so so I thought, if you're trying to show people what is possible, uh, what can be different, let's pick Finland and, let, and let's have a, a look at that. And I have to admit, it had just become the happiest country in the world, I think, at the time that we started writing. And by the time we finished, it was three or four times the happiest. And I've almost lost count now. What do Finns expect of their government that we don't? Or perhaps I should say we didn't, because at the moment we don't seem to be expecting very much of it at all. The thing that shocked me working on this book was how much Finns expect integrity from their government. I was utterly amazed that government ministers in Finland would resign if and almost immediately upon making the very smallest of mistakes, they would simply go, no questions asked. The biggest difference of all is the idea that you behave well. And if you don't behave well, you're you're out. Uh, and that's such a contrast to Britain now. It really, if you're English, it, it is it is stunning. Let's talk about health, because that's something that's on a lot of people's minds at the moment with the state of the NHS. Health systems are often quite complicated, but in the simplest possible terms, how does Finland's work? Okay, Um it's not that hard to look up. Uh, the Wikipedia entry for Finland health systems is very good and not very long. It's nationally coordinated, but devolved. Uh, so it's run by local municipalities, and it keeps on changing. So there are elections at the end of January this year, which will elect a new set of people in a slightly different set of areas, not quite so small to run it more efficiently. It's almost all state-funded, although with small fees for certain uses. And the key thing about it is it's incredibly efficient. People, there are waiting list um, numbers published for different areas. And in the best areas, you're waiting three or four days for an operation or to see a consultant. And in the worst areas, it could be a few weeks. And the Finns worry when it becomes a few weeks. And on top of this, they're actually spending less on their health service than we are. This is the key to Finland, is how everything is connected. You can spend less on the health service if you have much narrower income inequalities because you don't have to pay your doctors as much as they're paid in the UK because everybody on higher wages is paid less in Finland and the houses cost less. So a doctor can be well housed, but you don't have to pay them as much to be well housed. And the same with the nurses. There are disputes about nurses' pay at the moment in Finland. As I say, people worry incredibly about the detail. But they have one of the most effective health services in the world. And outcomes such as the lowest income, lowest infant mortality 
uh, that the human species has ever recorded. I mean, these are quite incredible records that Finland has achieved. And presumably you don't have to use the NHS to mop up some of the problems which emerge when you don't fund other public services properly. Certainly. So funding housing well, ensuring that there's almost no homelessness means that you don't have a population who are perennially uh, very ill, looking after your elderly, ensuring that they don't get cold and so on uh, helps. And also having a really highly educated population helps hugely. And it's these connections. This is a hard thing to explain. You couldn't, for a country like England, just sort out the health service or just sort out the education system, or just sort out the housing. It all works so well in Finland because all these services and other aspects of society rely on each other. And once you've got a whole set of things working well, it becomes easier and easier to run these operations. You mentioned education. Teaching is a much more prestigious thing in Finland, isn't it? It can be quite hard to get a training place to study to be a teacher. How are schools different there? Uh, yes, it, it, it's, it's very hard to become a teacher because so many people want to be teachers. It's actually quite hard to be a, a nursery nurse. You have to get a master's degree if you're going to look after three or four-year-olds in Finland because it's, it's, it's treated seriously. And the schools are in some ways quite different from, from ours. Uh, for start, they're all very similar to each other. So they have almost no or the lowest variation between schools that you see anywhere in Europe. There aren't good schools and bad schools. They're just good schools and they do quite a lot of work to achieve that. But teachers also have an enormous amount of autonomy to decide what they do. When and lots and lots of people visit Finnish schools, they get a bit sick of people visiting them because it was an education that Finland first topped the ranks in these um, huge numbers of international rankings. When people go to Finnish schools, they're somewhat surprised because it looks a bit anarchic, like the rest of Europe. And we're often not aware in England, but school uniform isn't a normal thing. <laughs> it's Malta, uh, England, and a few of our ex-colonies around the world where we make children dress up. So, of course, there's no school uniform. There isn't in, in the rest of Europe. But also, children might not wear shoes indoors. They're allowed to work on their own. It's it's not so regimented, not the same kind of authoritarian uh, structure that we've moved more to and the irony about all of this is that Finland used to have a very divided education system it used to have elite grammar schools and then schools with lower orders and in the 1960s the Finns came to England to see how can you do education better and they copied our comprehensive model and then they took it further and further along a path and, and now when you measure the ability of Finnish children to solve problems or to be creative or to do maths, they're incredible at maths. It's stunning. And the average number of languages spoken by a Finnish child, I think, is about six fairly well languages by the age of 16, maybe about six by the age of 18, six languages. Um, <laughs> you know, Swedish, Finnish, maybe Russian, certainly English, maybe German, not seen as abnormal. And people do travel from around the world to see how it can work and, and what can happen. And the great advantage is not having this divide between schools. There are a tiny number of private schools in Finland, I think less than 1%. And those 1% are often actually heavily state subsidised, so they're hardly private. So you don't have people worrying so much about trying to get their children into this school and not, not that school. And that is really, really beneficial.
thinking about housing, a third of Finns rent, which is about the same as in the UK, actually, but it's a different mix in that there's more social housing, isn't there? And there is actually, there are actually quite long waits for social housing. How has that come about? It evolved. All these systems in Finland keep on changing. So there are different types of social housing in Finland. Uh, there's a form of social housing which you're in it for life and you can pass it on to your children and it is completely protected and you can also put in a sum of money which you will receive if you ever leave that housing and that's at a higher level than other social housing and so there's quite a long waiting list for that but again Finland's been changing its systems in the last year they've changed the waiting list system so that you can't simply wait forever to try to get exactly the flat you want in the right place perhaps the best way to explain why, why the housing situation works better in Finland. When Helsinki was decommissioning its old port, the equivalent of our Canary Wharf, because the land in Helsinki is owned by the local government, they decided not to make this area tower blocks and a kind of inner city uh, business district. They decided to make it a, a social housing area, really near to the middle of the city, because that's what they saw as their priority. And you have to kind of imagine us doing that with Canary Wharf. If we, if we really cared about housing, that's the kind of thing we'd have done. And we'd have kept our banks in the middle of London rather than on the edge. And in that social housing, it's very specialised. There is even housing for retired pop singers, which has uh, studios in the council housing that are soundproofed. Or to give you one more example, something like 95% of students at university in Finland are renting from the local state, in a, in a sense, in a council house. And the large majority of those have their own apartment with their own kitchen and cooker, not sharing with anybody else. And they're paying a government rent for this. It, it, is, quite, it is quite stunning when you go and see the quality of the, of the housing there. And so I just had to add on top of this, it's allocated on the basis of need. So that if you are an overseas student studying in Finland, because you won't have family in Finland, you get to the top of the list for getting the most convenient of this state-funded student housing of high quality above everybody else. I don't believe many of your listeners will actually believe me. Compared to the British system of mass private renting for students with landlords building these great big tower blocks where they make an absolute fortune, where you actually spend money using the most expensive ensuite toilet you'll ever have in your life, that the difference between the way that Finns do it, where they see needing a bedroom when you're at university as simply something which is essential and you shouldn't be exploited to have one, and us, where the student market is seen as something where the private sector can get in and grab as much money as possible, the difference is, is just stunning. Finland is also unusual in having lots and lots of second homes, about half a million of them, which is a lot when you've got a population of five and a half million. Why do they have so many and, and how do they seem more at ease with the idea of second homes than we do? Yes, um, it's a big country, remember, a big country for a small population. And most of these homes are homes in the countryside that often a family would have had several generations ago before they moved into the bigger cities. So the housing was there. The housing, that house in the second homes works in the summer. It's often not that uh, comfortable in the winter. So it's used as summer houses and it's shared between families. 
Uh, so they have somewhere to go and somewhere to, to get away from everything. But it's not just Finland that has this. New Zealand had a tradition of these houses. New Zealand was also a very equitable country uh, in the past, not not now. And they were called batches in, in New Zealand. And a typical New Zealand family would have, you know, a kind of glorified hut somewhere near a beach that they could go to in the, in the summer then. So it's not just Finland that has done this, but Finland manages to preserve it, to make it carry on being possible. These are owned by families so that somebody isn't extracting a rent, so you don't end up with a few landlords owning all the holiday cottages, if you like. It's much more social than that. Finns have a reputation for being quite introverted. So what keeps the social fabric together? What kinds of institutions and activities help to ensure that people don't suffer from the kind of loneliness that we see in Britain and perhaps in some other European countries? This is really interesting. It's one, one of the shocks if, you, if you're British. And, and we're, the British are quite introverted. Um, if you compare us to many people from parts of southern Europe, we look a bit staid and a bit standoffish and we step back a, another foot further away from people when, when we talk. Uh, the Finns, on average stand back yet another foot away from people when they when they talk. And if you ask people about this in Finland, the, the, the funny thing you get is that people, in my experience, invariably tell you that people in another part of Finland are even more standoffish than they are in their part. Uh, so it's, it's all very much a relative thing. But it, it's in the eye of the beholder very much. It's just what you're not used to. People are careful about the, what they say and don't just make conversation... Uh, for its own sake but the institutions are incredibly strong you know if if almost all children go to the nearest school if you go for the half of the population who go to university you go to your local university in a large uh, number of cases where you have a whole series of laws and regulations that say that you can't exploit people Finland has the best work-life balance in the world including for people with low educational qualifications if you have an ethos that says this is how we do things, then it works. Now, if you talk to more conservative Finns, they will tell you it's the Lutheran church and that kind of tradition. And they might even say, oh, it's saunas. Saunas are very important. And although those things may matter, that Christian heritage can be found all over the world. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you get a society that cares for each other. I think it's the equality and the fact that the equality has now existed for two generations. So children and their parents have been brought up in an ethos where other people are seen as worthwhile and where putting yourself on the pedestal and saying you're better than others is seen as really odd. There must be something weird about you to do that. Well, I wanted to ask you a bit about that because, you know, and perhaps suggest that there are particular advantages Finland might have because of the way, because of its history. It's much less ethnically diverse than Britain, for example. We're, we're a lot bigger than Finland and the UK. We have this big post-industrial legacy to contend with that Finland doesn't have. Does the fact that it's relatively small and not very diverse, does it help Finnish politicians get consensus for what they want to do? I don't think that is key. I mean, you have to remember that Finland has one of Europe's only remaining indigenous populations in it. There are Roma communities in Finland, and in the last decade, a very high rate of immigration from outside, including immigration from places like Somalia. Finland takes a lot of uh, refugees. But 
as they've been taking those refugees, they've been very careful to make sure that none of the neighbourhoods becomes a ghetto, that schools don't become schools primarily for refugees and so on. So there's work that goes into this. More importantly, and this is tricky to talk to people about in Finland, but in 1918, Finland had a terrible civil war. It was called a terror. Thousands and thousands of people were shot and killed. And it created a division between the whites and the reds, which lasted a couple of generations. I, I was talking to uh, a man about, of about my age who told me that in his childhood, his family would only use one shop in the village and other people would use the co-op shop, the shop for the reds. And you would, you would not use the wrong shop because of these divisions. So the UK has not had a civil war in living memory. We don't have these, but Finland has got over those kind of divisions. So the idea that it is because it was naturally homogeneous doesn't work. It was naturally utterly poor, the poorest part of Europe just over 100 years ago, and really, really divided. Thinking about the tax and how, how Finns are taxed, is it different from the UK there as well? I mean, is it mostly income that's taxed or more property and wealth? It's a very similar mixture. Uh, in this book, Anika and I produced a graph of, uh, which shows the difference between the tax distribution from various sources in Finland and the tax in England. And you have to look very carefully at the graph to see the subtle differences. The graph works, if I try to describe it to you, both by width over how much is covered and height over the rate of the taxes. The overall area of Finnish taxation is higher. It's just over half of all GDP is in effect taxed, and those taxes are spent for the public good on public services, but a very wide range of public services. Whereas in the UK, we have one of the lowest, I think they're almost the lowest rate of any large country in Europe in terms of our tax rate as a proportion of GDP. Ours is only about a third, uh, or it was before the, the pandemic when it rose up to about 40%, whereas Finn's over half. And the rest of European countries are between the two. So Finland has relatively high tax rates, but it's spread over a whole range of things so that nothing in particular stands out that strongly. You visited Finland recently, didn't you? Uh, yes, in the summer. And you gave a talk warning about what you called success fatigue. Tell me about that. Yes. Well, I was invited to do a talk at a housing conference in Finland and I wasn't sure what, what I could do, which would be that useful because, of course, you know, Finland, the, the country in Europe with the lowest homelessness rates, the most successful housing policies, what do you say? And I just tried to sort of see how did we go wrong in Britain and could that occur there. Britain, famously, after the Second World War, we had the most successful social housing policy in the world. The majority of children in the 1946 birth cohort, this is a random study of children born in 1946, the majority of them lived in a council house at one point in their childhood. So whenever somebody of that age told, tells you, I grew up in a council house, and you can just tell them, yes, you were normal then, most people did. We had this incredible, incredibly successful system which we dismantled and pulled apart. And my warning to the Finns was it wasn't so much the obvious contenders, that is the right wing who want to destroy this and 
uh, often with input from America, which the USA always saw our housing system in England as being dangerous because it could lead. It was a rocky road to socialism as far as they, as they could see. It wasn't so much the right wing. It was when your left wing and your social democrats become complacent. That's, I think, when you lose out. If you look now at the UK and consider the problem of black mould in these thousands of bedrooms in housing association houses and the salaries of the thousands of chief executives of housing associations that have been semi-privatised, now paid 100, sometimes 200, sometimes 300,000 pounds a year, that rising housing associations and the part privatisation of our social housing, that rise partly happened under the Blair government. Even more importantly, the big rise in private renting carried on right through our social democratic government. And by the end of it, one in three children were living in a house uh, which is privately rented. And the policy was never, when we, we had a policy of increasing private renting in Britain, it wasn't to end up with families in private renting. In London, on average, having to move every two or three years, which means your children lose their friends and they lose their places in schools and so on. And it was the complacency in Britain of people who thought that they were politically progressive that helped this happen. And so that was what I was trying to get over to Finland. You know, the only way for them is down. It's very hard for Finland to do better. Uh, it's a nice problem to have when, you, when you're doing this well. But if you like, the only way is down. You have to be aware of that complacency and to see how how it is possible for it to build up and people not realise what it ha- is that they have until they have lost it. And then it is so hard to get it back again. Good note to end on there. Danny, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Danny Dawling is the co-author of Fintopia with Annika Koyonen. If you'd like to support The Bunker and help us carry on talking to fascinating people like Danny, visit Patreon Bunker Podcast and become a regular supporter for as little as £3 a month. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Katja Tomashevich, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard, Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>